Lois always kids me when I say, um, 15 weeks ago, because she'll say it's 16. Or if I say 16 weeks ago, she'll say it's 15. Well, whenever it was, we started in September looking at spiritual warfare, the invisible war that is raging even today. You know, you really can't understand the meaning of Christmas without understanding something about that war. Can't really understand your life very effectively without understanding that war that's raging. Unless you get back beyond Genesis 1-1 and see the acts of one who is called the bearer of light, we really can't understand what life is all about and what Jesus has come to do. If you're anything like me, you've learned a few things in the past uh, number of months as we've looked at this. And here we are at Advent, and we've looked at righteousness from a number of different angles, and this morning we want to look at the belt of righteousness. Because when you compare the belt of truth in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, it has a direct relationship to the belt that Jesus wore, the belt of righteousness. It's found in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Thomas Shepard was four years old when his mother died. Within months, his dad remarried, and his stepmother hated him. She abused him every day. For five years, she abused him. And then when his father died, he moved in with his grandparents, his paternal grandparents. That's where Thomas Shepard grew to love learning. And at age 15, he enrolled at Cambridge University. But in the second year after his matriculation, in his sophomore year, he said that his doubt and his fear... And his brokenness was so great, he didn't know if he could go on. So one day, in the depths of despair and discouragement, he walked into a field. And there, he said, he began to pray. 
And he said, and he writes about it, it was as if I was overcome by a storm of God's grace. I felt as though the Lord was healing my heart. That's the day when I began to know the truth of Jesus. A few years after he finished his undergraduate work, he went to seminary, and eight years after that, he embarked on a trip to America. And when he got to Boston, he was installed as the senior minister of the First Church of Cambridge, Massachusetts. There in the first year of his tenure, he and others founded a school that you've probably heard of, Harvard. It was founded as a school to train young men for ministry in the colonies. Shepard taught, he preached, he even fundraised for the school. And then one night, three three years before he died, at age 44... In his 41st year, after being there in Cambridge for 13 years, a friend knocks on his door and there's no response. So the friend opens the door and he finds his friend, Thomas Shepard, lying on the ground, face down. And in his right hand is a crumpled newspaper. And he said to him, Thomas, are you all right? And Thomas said, no, I'm not all right. What's the problem? And with that, he opened up the paper to his friend. And on the front page of that paper were two sermons. One from Thomas Shepard and the other from his good friend. And the editor at the top of the page put, someone far more eloquent than Shepard. Shepard said, I couldn't even read my friend's sermon. I couldn't even read it. And so I've fallen on my face before the Lord. I've knelt down. Would you come and kneel down with me and pray that God would break my pride? That he would change my proud heart? That's where it all begins. Before the garden... Before God calls light out of darkness, before the words in the beginning, the wisest, most glorious creature God ever made said in his own heart, I will be like the Most High God. Instead of peace, there's pride. Instead of worship, there's wanting. Instead of submission, there's a superiority. A feeling of superiority. Five times in his arrogance, Lucifer, the bearer of light, wills his own will, but God won't allow him to succeed. Instead of success, he's cast from heaven. And as we've noted over the past number of months, God does not destroy him. He has every reason to, but he doesn't do it. Why? Because God desires to demonstrate to all creation that any will that's willed apart from the will of God will not prosper. 
but will be laid low. You see it in Lucifer. You see it in Adam. You see it in Cain. You see it in everyone in Scripture. At the center of every will that wills its own will is rebellion. And at the center of every rebellion is pride. One day Jesus is talking to his disciples and a crowd gathers. And he says to them in Matthew 23, you know, there are those who love being called father. They rejoice in being called rabbi. But let it not be so among you. For the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself, my father will humble. It's a little like the Fram oil filter commercial. Remember that one? Pay me now or pay me later. Jesus says, humble yourself now or I will humble you later. Someone has said, the 11th chapter of Isaiah is the clearest delineation of the character of Jesus Christ in all the Old Testament. You know what's at the heart of this delineation of his character? Humility. So let's look at it. First of all, notice the lineage. There shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, shall, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll find there's only one Jesse in it. He is an obscure farmer, a sheep farmer of all things. His father, his father's name was Obed, which means servant. His grandmother was Ruth who was a foreigner to Israel. And the first time you see Jesse appear in Scripture is when a prophet of God named Samuel comes to his house looking to anoint a king. And you think to yourself, why in the world would a prophet of God go to a sheep farmer's house looking for a king? But Samuel comes in and says, Jesse, the Lord has told me that one of your sons will be the next king of Israel. He'll replace Saul, so show me your sons. Jesse lines up all seven sons, and each one parades before Samuel the prophet. And after the seventh gets by, they all look like they could be king. Samuel says, do you have any more sons? Jesse said, yeah, i got a runt, a little boy. He's out in the fields watching my flocks. You know what Samuel says? Go fetch him, for we will not sit down before he appears. And when David comes in, when he darkens the doorway, Samuel says, this is the one. Now think about that. He's the youngest son of a sheep farmer. He's the runt of the litter. He's the most unlikely of all eight sons to be the next king. It says, Paul tells the Corinthians, God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. You know what David's name means? Beloved. That's exactly what he becomes. He becomes the greatest 
most decorated king in the history of Israel. There is no king like David. And so I ask you, why would this prophecy say there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse? Why not Jesse's most famous son? Why not a shoot from the stump of David? The answer is clear. It's 500 years after David was king. Israel has been conquered. They've gone from a proud nation to a group of paupers. In fact, at the time of this prophecy, Israel doesn't even feel like a nation anymore. They are at their lowest ebb. Listen to what John Calvin says. So much of the dignity of Israel has been diminished at this time that this nation seems to be an ignoble, rustic family rather than a royal family. You see, Israel is in despair. Israel is depressed. Israel is discouraged. They don't feel like offspring of David. They don't feel like the tree of David. They feel like the stump of Jesse. Then second, notice the love. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now think of this. At the time when Israel is at its lowest... The Lord comes through the prophet Isaiah and he said, I will produce a sprout, a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. You know what the Jews who understood this prophecy said for the rest of the generations? They didn't call him a shoot. They called the Messiah the sprout. But I want you to know something about agriculture in Israel at this time or in Babylon all over the Palestinian area, there, there was a primary tree, and we see them even here uh, around uh, this area. They're called cedars, different kinds of cedars. If you know anything about cedar trees, when you cut them off, there's no sucker growth. You cut off an oak, It'll send forth shoots. You cut off a maple, it'll do likewise. You cut off a cedar, it doesn't grow again. So what's God say? He says, I'm going to do the impossible. Out of the stump of Jesse, I'm going to cause a, a sprout, a shoot to grow. And on this shoot, I will rest my spirit. No one in the history of Israel until this point has been described as a person on whom the Holy Spirit rests. Before this time, he hasn't rested on anybody. The Holy Spirit's hovered. The Holy Spirit has come upon a person for a period of time or a season to, to anoint them to do a task. But until this point in the whole history of Israel, until Jesus Christ comes as that sprout out of the stump of Jesse, the Holy Spirit is never said to rest on anyone. So what's God saying? I'm going to do the impossible out of the stump of Jesse, I'm going to send forth a sprout, and I will have my spirit rest on him, 
And I will give him, I will endow him with six characteristics. And if you remember Tim's sermon from a couple of weeks ago, you go back to, to the ninth chapter of Isaiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, the same characteristics described by his name. These six characteristics. Now, there's somebody in this congregation that kids me for always talking about numbers. And yet, numbers are big to the Hebrews. You know what number six means? It's the number of man. So God says, I'll send a sprout from the stump of Jesse. Out of your humiliation, out of your death, I will cause one to come, and I will place and rest my spirit on him with six characteristics, the same number that you need. He will know all things, and he will have power to do all the things his Father wills for him to do. Third, notice the linkage. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now in Hebrew, the word belt, the word sash, they're the same word, ezor. And ezor literally means girdle. Now in ancient times, every man wore a tunic. Tunic was essential garment for a man. And a tunic was always made the same way until Jesus' day. A tunic was made of two pieces of cloth that were sewn together at the middle. And at that seam, a belt was worn. It was either a belt of leather, which symbolized sacrifice, because an animal had to die, or it was a belt of coarse cloth, which symbolized pain and suffering. And in some of these belts, there'd be a pocket. And in that pocket, you could store money. Remember Judas. He was the treasurer of the disciples. He wore a belt and had a pocket in it. That's where he put the money. Now, some people put money in it. Other people put weapons in it. But notice here, there's no mention of a pocket. Because the one who will come will wear a belt with no pocket in it because there's nothing to hide. Everything about him will be out in the open. In ancient times, when a man wanted to do some serious hard work, he'd take the hem of his tunic and he'd tuck it in the belt. It was called girding up the loins. So listen to how the Hebrew translates this verse. His thighs will be encircled by righteousness, and his loins will be encircled by faithfulness. In other words, he's come to work. He will always work. Did you know that in antiquity, when a man laid down at night, he never took off his tunic? Unless he was bathed, he'd never take off his tunic. He'd simply loosen his belt. His belt would always be around him. So this one who's to come will have a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. It will be around him. Nothing will be hidden. It'll all be out there in the open, and he'll never take it off. And then there's one other thing. Listen again to what the Hebrew says. 
His thighs will be encircled by righteousness, and his loins will be encircled by faithfulness. The Hebrews believed that the source of life came from a man's thighs and loins. You know, when Jacob made the promise to his father, Isaac, you know what the Bible says? He put his hand under his thigh, and he made the promise. In other words, he put his hand on the source of his own life, and he swore by the life of his father and by his own life. So what's God saying here? He's saying this one who is to come will never stop working. He will always be girded. And new life will flow from his loins and his thighs, from the belt of righteousness and faithfulness. And it will be a life that is completely the opposite of the life that Lucifer offers. At every point, this one who is to come will be the antithesis of Lucifer. Think of it. When Lucifer came, he was the light bearer until he was cast out of the heavenly Eden. But this one who comes will not be a light bearer. He will be the light himself. He will not just come to do his own will. He'll come to do the will of his father. He will not come to usurp the glory of his father. He will come to display the glory of his father. And then fourth and finally, notice the liberation. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Have you read the Bible enough to know that God's on the side of the poor? Have you read the Bible enough to know that God is on the side of the needy and the disenfranchised? He stands against the proud. He stands against those who trust in their riches. He stands against those who have in themselves their total sufficiency. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Now think of Lucifer. He was rich, but he wanted to be richer. He reflected God's glory, but he wanted to usurp it. When he comes to the garden, isn't that exactly the temptation that he utters? Eat this fruit and you will be like God. I thought about that this week. Right before the cross, what's Jesus say to his disciples? Eat this, and you will show forth my death. The opposite of Lucifer. You think of Eve and Lucifer and Adam. They all lived in paradise. Lucifer in the heavenly Eden. Adam and Eve in the earthly Eden. They all enjoyed the full presence of God. They had dominion over the creation. They were both given divine endowments, and they all wanted more. Rather than being humbled 
by their privileges. They were proud of them. Rather than being humble themselves, they seek to exalt themselves. How different from Jesus. Though he were rich, was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Though he wore heavenly vestments, he took them off and came to earth and he girded himself with righteousness and faithfulness. Rather than repelling the poor, he gives the poor all the glory that he himself possesses. And you know what? He still does. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13 John says, there in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and girded with a golden belt. His belt is a belt he still wears. He's still wearing the belt of righteousness and faithfulness, and it is that belt his righteousness, his faithfulness that produces new life. What's it mean to say that Jesus at the right hand of the Father still wears that belt? What it means is Jesus' work is not over. Of all the revelations of Jesus Christ in the Bible, this is perhaps the greatest one. He continues to wear his belt for it tells us that his work continues. What is his work? To bring down the high and mighty and to exalt the low and the humble. And the question is, who are you? Who are you today? Is there more pride or is there more humility? Jesus resists the one. He gives grace to the other. Think about that. Amen.